prayers for our family. Uh, glad that Kelly's home. She's regaining strength. She's still in a lot of discomfort due to being largely bedridden, but she has been able to get up yesterday. She was up in the wheelchair twice for a couple of meals and uh, just uh, doing better in, in regard to all those things. Uh, still needs a lot of help, which takes a lot of my time. And so uh, I am thankful to be home with her and the kids and have had a little bit more opportunity to call and talk to you on the phone and, and you know, be at home and less distracted to be able to pray for you in different ways and uh, ask you to continue to pray that she regains strength and that God will uh, give her relief from the cancer that's in her body as well. We don't know how all these things will go, but we continue to pray and wait and do what we can in the meantime. Uh, on to the subject for this morning. Uh, most of, not all of us, just got done celebrating Christmas and even this morning we've sung carols and enjoyed special music about the birth of Jesus, about his life. The birth of Jesus was only the starting point of his life. His baptism, his testing, his preaching and miracles, crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation, all of these things took place in the last three years or so of his life. And these are the subject where most of the content of the Gospels is found. Uh, we don't have a whole lot in the Gospels between his birth and then about the time that he was 30 and began his ministry. Uh, today we're going to look at one of these scenes from Jesus' ministry right as it begins from Matthew chapter 4. I was struck by this passage as I was reading through uh, the different Gospels and, and thinking about all these things in preparation for the Christmas season. Uh, by way of announcement, my plan is for us to, and I think I've mentioned this before, go through the book of Isaiah starting in January. And so this passage has a unique connection back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 8 and 9 but it also ties in with the coming of Christ. And so uh, this week, what we're going to do is look at it from the New Testament passage, looking back at the Old Testament in a few more weeks, probably six or seven weeks, we will look at it from the perspective of the Old Testament passage and see the foundation of where we are at today in understanding these truths about Jesus and God's purpose in the world. To our section this morning, in Matthew 4. We're just going to look at verses 12 through 17, just a short section. We'll notice two important details about Jesus' ministry, and these details answer two key questions. The first question is, where does Jesus go? And the second question is, what does Jesus do? The answers to these questions point us to the main idea this morning. Jesus does the unexpected to minister to the undeserving. Let's start by looking at where Jesus goes from the first few verses here. We see in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. So Jesus goes, first of all, to an unexpected place. He withdraws from near Jerusalem and heads up toward Galilee. Now geographically, uh, if you've seen maps of Bible times, you have uh, the, the Dead Sea, you have the Jordan River, you have Jerusalem down near the lower part of the Jordan River. You continue up the Jordan River. At the very end, northern end of the Jordan River, you have the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus goes from near Jerusalem, the sort of hub of activity in that day, all the way to this northern, more remote region. And this is surprising because Jesus was baptized down near Jerusalem. We see this in Matthew 3, verse 13. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. 
And we know that John was baptizing near Jerusalem because we see in Matthew 3, verse 5, Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him. This is also near Jerusalem because in verse 7, we see the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized, but John confronts them. So Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River down near Jerusalem. He's tempted in the wilderness, but also at Jerusalem, as we just saw in verse 5. The devil takes him to the holy city and has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And so even in Jesus' temptations that originate in the wilderness, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem to be tempted. And so we would expect he's been baptized near Jerusalem. He's been tempted and passed the temptation near Jerusalem. He's going to start his ministry in Jerusalem. But instead, he leaves Jerusalem, goes way up to the north, to this remote region, away from the scholars, away from the large crowds, away from the center of activity in Israel in that day. Now, it's possible for us to think that this is due to fear because we notice in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. However, Jesus was not running away. He was not afraid. John got arrested. I might get arrested. I'm going to go hide. But rather to fulfill prophecy, there is a transition from the public ministry of John. That is now ending. Jesus is going to begin his public ministry, and it is appointed according to God's purpose and plan to fulfill prophecy that Jesus is going to do so in Galilee. Jesus ends up in Capernaum, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel. Now, in contrast to Jerusalem, a place of activity, a place of power, a place of religious importance, Capernaum is a small city of fishermen and common people. We see this from chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus goes and calls his first disciples. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he goes and picks out two guys that were up-and-coming CEOs of the local business. No, he gets two fishermen. Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Jesus starts his ministry in a humble place and calls humble people to be his disciples to begin with. The people of Zebulun and Naphtali, those who remained in that region, were despised by the Jews of Jerusalem. We know this, for example, from John's Gospel. John 1, verse 46, there's this question that Nathaniel gives. Can anything good come out of Nazareth in Galilee? That's one of those places. You don't expect anybody important. You don't expect anybody uh, who's going to do anything of significance to come from a place like that. The Pharisees and Sadducees, though the religious leaders, similarly looked down. They said in John 7, verse 52, Search and see that no prophet ever comes out of Galilee. Now, they were wrong about that because Jesus came from there, but that was their attitude. Now, this assessment was in part fair toward Zebulun and Naphtali, not to the degree and not for the reasons that they had it, but it was a fair assessment that this was a place that was not of great importance a place where uh, had had, they had had great blessings from God and Jacob's prophecies about his sons. Zebulun and Naphtali are given these prophecies that speak of God's blessing and God's care for them. And yet they did not serve God well. They didn't drive out the Canaanites during the land. By the time we come to the book of Isaiah, uh, particularly Isaiah chapter 8, I'm just going to read a few verses for you from there. Um, Isaiah 8 uh, verses 1 through 4, they're part of who Isaiah describes here. He says, The Lord said to me, Take for yourself and set a large tablet right on an ordinary lever letters 
Swift is the, is the spoil, speedy is the prey, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And then he says, I approached the prophetess's wife. She conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, name him, and this is a strange name, but it's an important name, Mahershalal Hashbaz, which means swift is the spoil, speedy is the prey. God's judgment is coming. He says, before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, Samaria being the northern kingdom of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Zebulun and Naphtali are part of these ten northern tribes of Israel who are facing God's judgment. Why? Because they have turned away from God. They consult, verse 19, mediums and spiritists. They should consult God instead. It says they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. God is bringing judgment on them. And then it says, in earlier times, Isaiah 9, verse 1, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. God brought judgment on these people for their sin. And so they're among the northern tribes that God punishes, that God judges. Despite all these things being the case, where does Jesus go? Jesus goes to this place that is despised by the people, had been in the eyes of the people cast off by God, a place that had great promise that had been squandered, and he begins his ministry there. Let's look now at what he does. Jesus ministers to the undeserving, an unexpected place, and undeserving people. Well, we see that he starts out by preaching repentance. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John the Baptist had preached repentance to the religious leaders and to the surrounding people who came out from Jerusalem. And he said, uh, in verse 8, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 2, he had said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, turn from your sins, basically, in essence, is what he's saying by repent, and show that you've turned from your sins by the fact that you're living a different life now. So when the Pharisees and Sadducees come because they say, well, this will make us look good in the eyes of the people, we're going to get baptized too. John refuses to baptize them, at least at those who just come hypocritically and for the sake of appearance before people because he says, you don't really mean it. You don't really want to serve God. You don't really want to turn from your sins. You're just doing this to get attention from the people because we see that's their motivation throughout the Gospels. But if you genuinely want to follow after God, verse 8 of chapter 3 of Matthew, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't trust in yourselves. Don't suppose you can say, we have Abraham for our father. He said, this is not something where you come before God and you say, here's my credentials. You need to hire me and, and take me into your kingdom. He says, you need to come humbly. You need to recognize God can raise up sons of Abraham from the rocks sitting over there on the side of the river. So don't come before God boasting and saying, I deserve to be led into your kingdom. Come humbly, repenting of your sin. This was the message of John the Baptist. This is also the message of Jesus. He says the exact same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We can understand this in a couple of different ways, but probably the best way to understand it is the kingdom of heaven is at hand and all that it means because its king is right before you, preaching before you, standing before you, calling you to repentance. Now, what is this kingdom like? It's not a kingdom of this world, and this is a point on which the people got confused. Now, to clarify... 
this is not a question of whether it is a physical kingdom because something can be a spiritual reality and yet still be physical you and i have physical bodies and yet we are spiritual beings and the new heavens and the new earth that are described throughout the bible those are actual physical places even though they are real spiritual of real spiritual significance and so it's not a contrast between physical and spiritual but rather between the nature of kingdoms in this world and the sort of kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming to them it was a kingdom that was physical but not corrupted by sin Peter speaks of a time when the heavens and the earth will be sort of purged with fervent heat and the sin purified out of it like when you heat precious metal over a fire when you forge something in a, in a, a blacksmith forges uh, a weapon or a tool so too the earth will be purified and so this physical kingdom will not be corrupted by sin it is something that was yet to come Jesus is proclaiming it but we, it doesn't happen instead Jesus is put to death and says I will return and I will establish my kingdom when I return and so it's something that is future and yet there are aspects of it that can be experienced at the present time what I mean by that is it had come near the king was there people could believe in and submit themselves to that king Jesus that didn't mean that the kingdom was just sort of this vague fuzzy feeling I have Jesus ruling in my heart that's you know that's the way that that Ben-Hur and some of the Christmas stories and all these other sorts of things that maybe you've read Christian fiction they make it sound like the kingdom is just sort of this thing that is within us and kinda like the the Christmas spirit but the kingdom is an actual coming reality Jesus is going to come and reign on this earth but that didn't take place when he came the first time it is going to take place when he returns if the king would this is, the, this is true because this king would suffer first and then reign. And in so doing, he's going to fulfill all of the pictures, the prophecies of the Old Testament. So Jesus preaches repentance. Jesus preaches repentance to the undeserving. We see this in the context of uh, what is described here, verses 15 and 16. The people of Zebulun and Naphtali are descendants of those idolaters that were punished by God when the Assyrians came those who were as we see in Isaiah 8 and 9 cast into darkness Isaiah 8 22 says they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness the gloom of anguish and they will be driven away into darkness and yet there is hope held out here but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt this is Isaiah 9 1 but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles the people who walk in darkness will see a great light those who live in a dark land the light will shine on them the people in Jesus day who yet remained in this same place that was spoken of in Isaiah 8 and 9 they were sinners just like the people of that day Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and come short of God's glory. That's true of them. That's true of you and I. But Jesus offers light to them as the good shepherd guiding his people, Psalm 23, through the valley of the shadow of death. The people that sat in the shadow of death in the land of darkness, verse 16, upon them a light dawned. 
Who is that light? What is that light? We got done studying the book of the Gospel of John a couple of months back. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light who is dawned upon the people who sit in darkness. He's the gracious king offering life to rebellious subjects. He is the one who's bringing light to those who are sitting in darkness. So what does this mean for us? It means, as Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians 1, 25-27, that God does not save people because they are wise or powerful or rich. That's the way of the world in assessing people's value. Are you smart? Do you have some sort of political or social standing? Do you have money? If you don't, the world doesn't care about you. But that's not how God assesses people for purposes of His kingdom. He does not let you in because you are wise or powerful or rich. And for the most part, He does not save people who are wise or powerful or rich. As the song that uh, was played a little bit ago, poor lowly people is primarily who God saves. And even those who are valuable according to the standards of this world have to come before God humbly, just like John the Baptist called the Pharisees to come before him humbly. Don't come in your standing of, here's my spiritual background. Don't come in your standing of, here's all the things I think I can offer you, God. You come before him in this way as someone who is in an unlikely place, an unlikely person, humbly submitting before God. What are some examples of this from the Gospels? The Samaritan woman who was an adulteress. She had been married and divorced five times and then was just living with a guy. And Jesus comes to her and says, here's who I am. I bring you the water of life. And she says, I believe in you. And she goes and she tells the people of the village and they come and trust in Jesus. At the same time that all of the people who knew all the things about God's word in Jerusalem and Judea were rejecting Jesus, here's people who know they're sinners coming to Jesus as sinners and saying, we turn from our sin to you. There's the blind beggar. He's not a theologian, but he makes a profound statement. He says, I know you say that this man could not have healed me and that this man is not good and he's not from God, but where has it been heard in all the world and all the history of the world that someone is given back sight? Do you think God's going to make a sinner give me back sight? The Pharisees have no answer. They just kick him out of the synagogue. But here's just a common guy, spent his whole life begging, blind, the gospel dawns on him and he regains both physical and spiritual sight. The Gentile centurion. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the common people say, Jesus, we want you to do a great miracle so that we can believe in you. What does the Gentile centurion do? He says, hey, I know you're busy. I know you have authority. You can speak and you can heal this person. Jesus said, I haven't found faith like this among the Israelites. Those are examples of the power of Jesus' message, the good news that He is God, that He is King, that He is the one we need to believe in coming to ordinary people, unexpected people, and they are turned to Jesus and believe in Him. This salvation comes in the same way for us through repentance. You may not have wisdom or power or riches to trust in, but all of us trust in something about ourselves. I'm a good person. I haven't done anything really bad. And we come before God and we say, and this is why you should let me into heaven. This is why you should accept me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, no, you cannot do that. You cannot come before me and offer me anything. 
It's like if there was a house that was worth $50 million. And you showed up and you're like, hey, got five bucks. I'm going to buy it from you. You're not buying it. You're insulting the person that is offering it for sale. This is not even something that's for sale, but we still come before God. We try to buy it. They're like, here's my five bucks. Let me get this great and precious gift that's worth far more than all the wealth in the world. And I'm going to buy it by being a kind of okay person. Jesus says, I don't want your money. I don't want your good works. I don't want your religious efforts. I want you to come humbly before me and recognize nothing that you have done will let me come before you. The only thing that is acceptable is what Jesus has done in our place. So for us, there is the same hope that if we abandon that self-trust, that here's what I can do for you, God, attitude, and come before him humbly, he will receive us. There is the same hope that came to humble fishermen and common people in the village by the sea in Jesus' day. Salvation, light out of darkness, deliverance from sin, sharing in God's glorious kingdom. And so the question for us from this passage is, have you repented to share in God's kingdom? Or are you still in darkness even though the light of the world has come? What does that look like? Like I've been saying this whole time. Turn from anything you trust in instead of Jesus. Turn to God through Jesus away from your sin to follow after him, to look for his coming kingdom and to serve him until that time comes. If you have done that, you have begun that process, you turn from your sin to God, do you show it as John admonished the Pharisees by deeds worthy of that repentance? Do you follow Jesus as your king? In, in the rest of Scripture, it says you've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, so walk as children of light. It says that we are those who receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, though we may go through difficulty on the way, so come before our God who is a consuming fire with reverence and awe. Does that characterize our lives? Or do we just sort of act like this is no big deal and Jesus isn't a king and it's not a kingdom and we're just going to sort of do the same things that the world does but maybe not get into all the trouble that they do? Jesus did the unexpected to minister to the undeserving. And through his ministry, we have received the opportunity for salvation. It comes through repentance. It comes through humble submitting of ourselves to his way of salvation. And if we receive him in this way, we have a part in his kingdom. We are taken from darkness into light. And we have a glorious hope to look forward to. I hope that you know and understand those truths for yourself this morning. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you that Jesus came not first to the great and mighty ones of his day, but to humble ordinary people. Calling them to follow after him not in their own strength and ability, not because they had so much to offer him, but because he had so much to offer them. Lord, I pray that that would be true for us this morning, that we would see that we don't come before you and say, here's all the things I have to give you, but rather I receive the great gift that you have to offer me. That we 
exchange our sin and despair and hopelessness for the hope and the glorious future that you hold out for those who are your people. Lord, we pray that these things would be on our minds this week. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.